couple years ago, I was trying to remember when it is. Sadly, I feel like everything two years to about seven years ago just all gets kind of smushed together in my mind. I can't keep it all straight, but I think it was about two years ago. I was sitting in uh, Dunkin' Donuts right here by the outlet mall. And as I uh, sat there, I was working on a sermon. I had my Bible open and a gentleman walks up and sees my Bible open and starts talking to me. And he starts asking me some questions about, well, what are you reading and what are you, what are you studying right now? And so we get into this conversation. The guy was really, really nice. He was kind. Uh, he was gracious. Uh, he knew the Bible. He had a lot of good questions. And so we got into a pretty deep theological discussion on what I was reading and kind of where I was. And we started talking about these things and about uh, probably a third of the way through what ended up being almost an hour long conversation, he shared with me that he was a Jehovah's Witness and he was one of the leaders of the church here in, in Dawson County. And so we started having all these discussions. But as he shared that with me, I kind of turned the conversation to the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus and who do we say he is? And suddenly we had a disagreement. And so when I say disagreement, we disagreed on who Jesus is. Uh, he would tell me that he believes Jesus is an angel, that he is not God, that he is not to be worshipped. But as we kind of delve deeper into that, and I kept asking questions, he would say that Jesus is the one who saves us. And it's by grace through faith and Jesus' sacrifice. And he said all these things that I was agreeing with. And I was going, yes, that's true. And this is true. But we get back to the person of Jesus and he departs to say that Jesus is an angel that is beneath God, that is not God, that is not to be worshipped as God. And so as we went through this, we kind of got to this very pointed disagreement on who Jesus was. Although I will say it was always kind. It was gracious. He was never ugly. We had a really good conversation about all of this. But after talking about who Jesus is for about a half an hour, we kind of agreed to disagree. We don't see this the same way. I believe Jesus is God. You believe he's a created being that's an angel. And we disagree on this point. And so as we were about to leave, he said to me, would you be willing uh, to take some brochures about the Jehovah's Witness Church and just have them available in your church? So if people have questions about what we believe, would you have that in your church? And so I'm going to stop my story there. And I want you just to think about this for a second. How big of a deal is this, our disagreement on what he was saying versus what I was saying? That I believe Jesus is God and he's saying Jesus is a created being. How big of a deal is this? And then my next question when you, to you would be, if you're in my position and he asked you to take these brochures and put them in your church, what would your answer be? What would you say to that? Not only what would you say to that, but why would you say what you said? Do you have a good uh, conception in your mind of how you would answer that and how you would walk him through whatever your answer is, whether you think it's a really big deal or not that big of a deal, whether you would take those or you wouldn't, how you would answer it and what you would do and why you would do it. And I want you just to think about that for a second. And we're going to leave that there. We'll start there. And I'm going to come back to that at the end of our sermon. But I want you just to think about what your answer would be and how you would formulate that and what it would look like. And the reason I start there and I tell you that story as I, as I think about it is what Paul says here in our text. In verse 17, he tells us to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. And so I want us just to think about what that means and why he says that and why that is so important that he keeps coming back to this idea. And I say keeps coming back to this idea in this way. Throughout the epistles, Paul talks a lot about sound doctrine, about guarding sound doctrine, about the importance of knowing what God's word says. And he says it over and over and over and over again. We see it all the way through the New Testament. 
And so I want us today to think about why that is so important of seeing clearly the core doctrines of what we believe. Doctrines being the the summary of everything that we see the Bible saying and what we believe as Christians and what we have historically believed as the church as we follow Jesus. And so why is that so important? And so we'll come back to that example kind of as an application of everything we're going to look at today. And so I want us to look at these few verses that are here from 17 to 20 and what he says here. And I want us to consider a couple things about this as we think about uh, bad doctrine, things that get brought in, things that kind of are, are not exactly what the Bible says and how deceptive that can be and how easy it can get kind of brought into the mix. And so the way I want us to look at this is, first of all, just to ask why this is such a problem. And then secondly, how do we combat it? With what he says here, he gives us some wisdom on how to see that clearly and how to make to see the distinctions and see it clearly. And so why is it such a problem? And then how do we combat it? And then we'll come back to our example at the end. And so look at with me just right here at verse 17 and 18. Let's look at that again and just let's consider why this is such a problem and what the big deal is here. But he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive, right? And so part of what he's talking about, and he saw this throughout the New Testament, <clears throat> pretty much every church that Paul would go and help plant and start, and then he'd write these letters back to, were dealing with some sort of bad doctrine that made its way in. People would come along and say, well, that's not exactly true and this is true. And so Paul was always kind of writing to to clarify these things and help them see the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And it was in all these different ways. And so what happens when we stray from what scripture says, uh, we embrace heresy. Heresy just means that we're now holding to something that the Bible doesn't say clearly. Right? That's what heresy is. And so sound doctrine is based on what scripture clearly says. Heresy is where we depart from what scripture says and start to believe things that are wrong. And so I want us just to think about why this is so important as we begin. God tells us that his word is what shows us who he is. He's revealed himself to us in his word. And so it's important that we hold fast to what his word says. And when we don't, when we start to bring in things that are contrary to his word, It can lead to division, which Paul talks about here. He says, watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. It can cause division, but not only does it cause division, it will then start to seed uh, doctrinal error, which ultimately can lead to us believing things that are contrary to what God has said and the way he's revealed himself. And so I want you to think about how serious this is. It can cause, it can start with divisions and small disagreements, maybe on kind of secondary issues. But if it's a, if it's a heresy that we embrace that is central to our faith, it can actually lead people away from Jesus. It can lead us away from what scripture says. It can lead us ultimately, if we follow that all the way through to damnation, to not being saved, to not knowing who God is. If we embrace heresies that are central enough to the person and work of Jesus, it can lead us to believing things that are not true of who God is. And so this is really an important point that he's making to watch out for these things and to be careful and to look at it. It made me think as a, as a start here and just Paul talking about unity in the church, he's saying here, he doesn't want it to cause divisions in verse 17, the importance of being unified in the truth. 
that the unity that God calls us to is a unity that is unified in who Jesus is and the way he's revealed himself. And so I was thinking about in John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is the end of Jesus's upper room discourse and he prays for his disciples and he prays for us because he prays for the disciples and then he says, I'm also praying for those that will come to faith through what you've said, what the disciples will go and say as they make disciples. So he's praying for us. And so Jesus says in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, right? So he's praying to the father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. If you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word. So he's praying for the disciples. And so when he says that, he's praying for you that would come to faith. And then he says that they may all be one just as you father in me and I in you. And they may also be, on, be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus prays there for us for unity, that we would be one, one with the father and one with the son, with Jesus, that we'd be in the same part, that we'd all be believing these same things that are rooted and grounded in his word. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. And so Jesus calls us to this unity and he says, but it's going to be found in holding fast to what God's word says that we are unified in the truth of who God is and the way he's revealed himself. And so it's important that we see that from the very beginning, what Paul is addressing, what he's talking about here. Because he's saying, watch out for those who cause division. And then he'll go on to say that they, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Because Jesus prays for us and tells us that he wants us to have unity in his word. And he said, so if there are those that come along that are now putting things in that are not what God's word says, they are no longer serving Jesus because Jesus tells us that we would have unity in the way he's revealed himself to us in his word. And so this is of the utmost importance when we start to think about this. But second thing I want us to think about as we just think about this problem, big picture, if you've been with us as we were walking through Romans in Romans chapter 14, Paul talked about not having division. Again, he's talking about unity. He says this in chapter 14 and verse one, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions, right? And so we talked about in Romans chapter 14, not arguing and dividing over secondary things. But then here, Paul says, uh, I appeal to you, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught, avoid them. And you go, well, he just said two chapters before, Don't divide, don't argue over these things. And then here he says, but if it goes to the heart of doctrine, avoid them. He goes, well, is he saying something different now? He just told us, we just talked about the importance of having unity and not dividing over these secondary things. And now he's saying avoid them. But I want us to be clear on the difference between chapter 14 and chapter 16, because it goes to the heart of why this is so important and what he's saying here. In chapter 14, he was talking about secondary issues. What they would eat, what they would not eat. He was talking about some very specific things that were going on in the first century. We won't re-preach that whole sermon. But one of the examples I used in that sermon was uh, like today, believers within the church. There are believers in the church uh, that do not drink alcohol at all. 
teetotalers, this is called, right? That uh, make a decision based on their life, based on what's going on. Sometimes it's because of alcoholism uh, in their family or something they've struggled with. And they say, you know what? Alcohol is no good for me. I am not going to drink alcohol. I'm going to abstain. And they do so for the glory of God. And there's nothing wrong with that. And the Bible says that's fine. And that actually might be very wise, depending on where you came from and your background for you to do so. But the Bible also says that you can partake in alcohol if you do so in moderation. That if you're not going to the place of being drunk, that you are still sober minded, that you're enjoying it in moderation in that way, that you can partake in alcohol. And so there are believers that go, yes, I like a glass of wine or there's certain beers I like and I like to drink that. And they do so in moderation, honoring the Lord. And that too is okay. And so we talked about that in that sermon, that you can come out on different sides of that. And both of us, one may say, I will not drink. And the other says, I do. That is what we call an open-handed issue. Neither one, as long as they're doing it the way the Bible tells us to do it, is in sin. Neither one is sinning by doing that. And so we call that an open-handed issue that we as believers can disagree on. But here, what Paul's talking about when he gets to the doctrine that you have been taught, he defines it that way. He's talking about what we would say is closed-handed issues. Closed-handed meaning that they are things that go to the very heart of salvation, of who God is, of the way he's revealed himself, the person and work of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us and what that means. Those are not areas where we go, you can believe what you believe and I'll believe what I believe. We believe what God has revealed to us in his word. And so if we go against what we're saying, we are now in sin. We're ignoring what God has told us clearly in his word. And so we say that is a closed handed issue. And so Paul is not contradicting himself in chapter 14 and chapter 16. Two different issues. One is the open handed issues. Here he's talking about doctrinal issues that are closed handed. And so it's important for us to recognize those differences that are there. But what he's talking about here is when heresy, things that go to the very heart of who God is and the way he's revealed himself, that can lead people down a path that would lead them to not being saved, to not being worshiping God as he's revealed himself, those are closed-handed issues. And that's what he's talking about here. So the next question I want us to consider with that, that's why it's a problem, but I want us to think about why it's so rampant, why it's so common because over and over in the New Testament, we come back to this. Uh, for example, the, the qualifications for elders in the church to be able to guard sound doctrine and refute bad doctrine, to be able to teach God's word and see clearly error and help lead people away from that. That's one of the qualifications of a leader within the church, the, the office of elder. And so it's so important that it's come back over and over. But the question I want us to consider is why is it so rampant? Why is it such an issue? And so there's a couple things I want to think about. But the first thing I just want to remind you of is that when we talk about doctrine, we talk about what we believe and why we believe it. It's not merely an academic or mental exercise of understanding, but it is a spiritual battle. And the Bible tells us that over and over again. Ephesians chapter six, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. That's in Ephesians chapter six. 
And what he's saying, what he's talking about there is that we need to understand that God's word is going to show us clearly what is true and that there is real active deception in the world that are spiritual forces. And so the Bible is clear on this and we don't talk about this enough. And I just, I would confess, I don't talk about this enough. I don't remind us enough that what is true, that there are real evil in the world. That Satan was a real angel that was created in God's host that rebelled against God and now he seeks to destroy God's good creation. And when he rebelled, a third of the angels rebelled with him and they are now demonic forces that are seeking to destroy what God is doing. That is the reality we live in. And you say that and you say what the Bible says and people may look at you funny and go, you believe that? But that's the truth of God's word. And yes, I do believe that. That is true. And there are deceptive forces that are seeking to lead people away, that are seeking to destroy you. And so I, I say that not not to scare you, not to be like, oh, there's there's demons out there and you need to be worried about demons. But you need to recognize that they're real, that there are real evil in the world. There are real spiritual forces that are seeking to lead you away. But I want us to put it in the proper context. If you look closely at the book of Romans Paul mentions Satan one time. He gives him one half of one verse. And it's right there in verse 20. Look at what he says. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's all he gets. He doesn't make a big deal. He doesn't talk about him a whole lot. He acknowledges that he's real. And he says, God is going to crush him under your feet. And so I I don't want to get into talking about spiritual forces, demons, uh, Satan, and then we leave here like, oh, it's kind of scared. And what does that look like? And what does that mean? But it is to be wise to the things, to the truth of the way things are. And so it is real. There are real forces in the world that are seeking to bring you to destruction. But Jesus has defeated Satan. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the power of Satan. And I want you just to think about that for a second. What power does Satan have? He has the power to accuse you of us as being a sinner, which we are all sinners. He has the power to try to bring guilt and shame into your life. But when that happens, we turn and look to Jesus who has made an end to all of that, that has defeated sin and death, that has paid for our uh, sins for us. He's done for us what we could never do for us. When I, when I think about that, when I just think about the, the work of Satan coming and trying to tempt you, It immediately makes me think of before the throne of God that we sing here often. If you know that song, it says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within upward, I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless savior died. My sinful soul is counted free for God. The just was satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You have been pardoned by what Jesus has done. He has dealt with all your sin. And so the only power that Satan has is to come and accuse you of sin. And when he does, you turn and you say, no, Jesus has taken care of that. And you look to Christ and you hold fast to him in all things. And so it's not something to be afraid of, but it's something that we need to recognize that it does happen. That there are spiritual forces that are seeking to deceive you. Now, Satan can't uh, create anything. But what he can do is he can manipulate. He can add little lies to the truth. He can seek to deceive you in different ways. And so it's important for us to understand that we are in a real spiritual battle where this is taking place. 
And so when we talk about the, the, uh, Paul's exhortation here to look out for these things, to be on watch for those that cause division and bring bad doctrine and start to inject those things, it's because there is a real spiritual battle going on every day. There's a battle for ideas in everything that you do and everywhere you go. And what happens most of the time is the most convincing lies are those that are mostly true, right? When it's 95% correct and you're like, yes, yes, yes. And then you miss that one little part that makes it a lie, that causes it to be destructive. And so it's important for us to be aware. And so here he tells us, watch out for those that cause division and create obstacles contrary to doctrine. But then look at what he says. They're not serving Jesus, but their own appetites. And he says, by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Right? It can be hard to spot because of smooth talk and flattery. He says, oftentimes the lie are done with a smile and a pat on the back. Like, this is great, isn't it? Like, we say those things. And so we can easily get caught up into it. And so I was thinking about just the way he says that here. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. And I was looking at those words and exactly what they mean. Kind of an amplified version of that, right? Very literal what he says there. It might read plausible speech, which simulates good, artfully adaptive to captivate the hearer who's overly trusting to the person speaking. And that's easy to be sucked into that, right? If it's plausible speech, which simulates good, you go, yeah, that sounds pretty good. And it's easy for us to be sucked into that, to move away from sound doctrine. And it sounds really good. And that's what deception looks like. That's what spiritual battle looks like. It doesn't look like it makes me think of a song. Uh, one of my favorite bands has a song called Hell is Chrome. And he says in the song, he says, the devil came to me and he was not red. He was chrome and he said, come with me. And he's talking about in the song, the deception that comes from evil, what it looks like. It doesn't look like red with a pitchfork and horns. It looks like chrome, shiny, something that captivates us, sounds good, plausible speech. And that's what Paul's talking about. And look out for that. And so we, this is so important because we are in a spiritual battle that that is real and is around us. And so I want us just to think about a couple things here that lead us to that. Why that becomes so deceptive. And the first thing I would say to you just real clearly is that we don't know our Bibles. That we end up not really knowing what God's word says. And in fact, oftentimes we end up having secondhand knowledge of who God is. And what I mean by that is that we listen to what other people tell us about the Bible rather than reading the Bible. And that doesn't mean it's wrong to have other people tell you and help you and study and go through. I'm going to say in just a minute, it's important for us to do this in community. But if your entire relationship with the Lord is secondhand because someone else told you, rather than you knowing what God's word says. And so oftentimes we don't know what the Bible says. And then someone stands up and they speak authoritatively with a smile on their face and they tell you how good it is and this is what it says and you go, oh, wow, that's great. And we end up listening to what people tell us the Bible says rather than seeing what the Bible says. 
knowing what the Bible says. And so it's one of the convictions we have as a church. It's why we do exegetical preaching. It's why we've gone verse by verse all the way through the book of Romans. Because I want you to see what it says. I want you to see and look at the words, the reasoning, the context, the flow of the argument that you would see clearly that it's not my ideas, but this is what God says. This is what his words say. We want to rest in what God's word says. We want to let God's word be standing over us. And so oftentimes we're deceived because we don't know what the Bible says. We just take what other people tell us without actually seeing what it says. But then we let our culture stand over what scripture says. If we're not spending time in God's word, we're not dwelling richly in his word, hearing what it says, knowing what it says. And then we turn on the news or then we read articles or we spend time in the culture and we are inundated with information around the clock. And I would just remind you, there's a spiritual battle in all that, every bit of it. And what ends up happening is we have all these ideas that keep coming into us that are flooding in from every direction that are not what God's word says. So much so that when we hear what God's word says, we go, that can't be right. That's not true. I don't think because what's happened is we've embraced what our culture says as kind of common sense. And we've started from that place rather than what God's word says. And when that happens, we become easily deceived and we start to slip into error, into heresy. We start to embrace things that are not true, that have not been what God has said. And so it's easy for us to kind of go down that slippery slope. And I'll give you one other one in that because of the sinfulness of our heart, because of the things that we are bombarded with, and then we come to God's word or we hear God's word and what is true. And we go, I'm not sure about that we're really good at coming up with reasons to avoid with what God's word says. That can't be right. Does it really mean that? And so the deceitfulness, the sinfulness of our heart kind of does an end around on what the Bible says. And it's so easy for all of us. I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. Every single one of us has blind spots in our life. Every single one of us, depending on what we're listening to and what we're taking in and what we're seeing is going to lead us in different ways. And so it's important for us to be aware that we are in a spiritual battle and it's on every side. So what does this say here to help us in that? What does he tell us that helps us to recognize and to combat this? And so look again what he says here. Look at verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And so the first thing he tells you is to hold fast to what is good. I want you to be wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil. Or another way to say it is I want you to let God's word stand over what the world tells you. I want you to let God's word stand over what you feel. I want you to think about why I say it that way. To let God's word stand over how you feel. Young guy comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And you know what Jesus says to him? Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. And he was reminding him that God alone is good and God alone is the one that defines what is good. Jesus is not denying his, uh, uh, his divinity there, but he's pointing out that if you're coming to me as a human and you're thinking of me in that way, that you shouldn't frame it that way. But what he's saying is that God alone is good, that he is the one alone that tells us as things are, because in the sinfulness of our heart, we will see things with distortion. 
Every single one of us, the heart is desperately wicked. It will lead us astray. And so when we turn inward and go, it's all about me and what I think, we're quickly going to get off course. We need God's word to stand over us. And so what Paul's saying here, I think is very much what it says in Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. You hear what he's saying? He says, not letting the world dictate what believes and where he goes and how he operates, but he lets God's word stand over him in authority. And so if we want to, as he says here, to be wise in what is good and innocent as to what is evil, we let God's word stand over us. You know, sometimes, uh, maybe you've heard this before, but in order to spot a counterfeit, how do you do that? Have you ever heard this before? This is, well, this is one of the old preacher examples, right? So you've probably heard it in some sermon at different times. But there's so much uh, counterfeit currency in our world, right? That we have experts that are looking at it, that are trying to take it out of circulation at all times. And the way that they train them to do that is they study what the real bills look like. They don't study all the counterfeits. There's too many of them. And there's too many things that are wrong. Instead, they say they study the actual bills, the way that they're made. And so that when they see one that's counterfeit, they know it is counterfeit. They go, that's not right. I know what the real one looks like. And so the same is true with God's word. We meditate on it day and night. We let it stand over us. We look at what God's word says so that when heresy, when doctrines that are not true come, you go, that's not what the Bible says. You know it. And then you can see where there is error. And so it's important that we hold fast to what God's word says. But then the second thing, and it's right there at the beginning of verse 19, he says, for your obedience is known to all. So I rejoice over you. And hopefully this is obvious. Uh, Hopefully it's almost kind of redundant. But I want you to notice there that he doesn't say in verse 19, for your knowledge of the Bible is known to all. Jesus doesn't say, go make disciples of all nations teaching them to know everything that I said. He says, go make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Right? So there's an important distinction here. It's not just that we know the doctrine and we dwell richly in God's word and we can spot error, but we not only believe it, but then we begin to live it. We let it be the authority of our lives. When there's things in my heart that want to go, I don't know that I want to do that. Not sure about that, but God's word says this is what we're called to do. We let it stand over authority over my feelings, over what I think is the best way to act in this particular situation. I let God's word stand over me. In fact, that's exactly what Proverbs 3 says. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your, your paths straight. Be not wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I love that verse eight. It'll be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. When you trust God and you obey him and the things that he's told you, even when it doesn't feel like the thing that you want to do, there will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Because God knows how he created his world. He knows how he created you and the way you were to live and the way he made us to function in it. He knows better than we do. 
And so it's not just knowing what his word says, not just being able to uh, spot bad doctrine, but then beginning to live and trust him and letting it stand over you in all things. And so God's word, letting it be authority over us. But let me give you one more thing here that's real important in that. And all this, as we think about uh, holding fast to the doctrine and what God has told us, it's important that we're doing so in community. We need others speaking into our lives and helping us walk this out. Because we're in a spiritual battle, because there's deception involved, because it's so easy to be taken off course, we need other people walking with us arm in arm. We need older believers that know the Bible better than we do, that can help grow us in that, help point us to where things are that we maybe have missed. Younger believers need older believers to come alongside. We need to be there together one another, but we also need to be able to speak the truth to each other because every single one of us has blind spots. Every single one of us misses things at different times. And we think we're holding fast to it. And it's like, well, wait a second. That's not what God's word says. And we need other people speaking into our life, walking with us. Again, our heart is deceitful. And we're in a spiritual battle and those things are coming at us from all directions. We need other people. And the Bible tells us this over and over. If we're going to let the Bible be our authority and listen to what it tells us, it tells us that we need to be in community. And we need others speaking the truth into our life. One last thing here, just on all this that he says, and I want to make sure just so it's clear. The end of verse 17 there, he talks about the divisions and obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. And then he says, avoid them. And so I just want us to ask that question. How should we take that? Does that mean that someone is believing a heresy or you have friends that are not believers and they don't believe the Bible and they believe things that are completely contrary to God's word? Does that mean that you have nothing to do with them? You just avoid them and go, oh, they're way off. I don't want to have anything. No, here he's talking about within the church, people that have come in and are seeking to lead people away within the church. They're teaching heresy and they're seeking to kind of pull them away. They have nefarious uh, things that they're seeking after. They're seeking to pull people away from God. And he says, avoid them. Don't let them have that kind of audience within the church. And so he's talking about guarding sound doctrine, like the, what we're called to do as elders. So if somebody comes in and goes, I want to teach a Bible study within our church, and we go, okay. And we work with them and we walk through what they're teaching. And then we find out that they're teaching that Jesus is not God then there's a step that needs to be taken. We're not going to allow them in that position to do that, to lead people astray. And so that's what he's talking about here, because I want us to be sure that we see and are reminded of what Jesus tells us, that he does tell us to love all people, to speak truth, to continue to have those conversations, to welcome people in. We want to welcome people to come be part of our worship gathering that may not agree with anything I've said today that they would hear the truth of God's word and continue to be able to wrestle with those and we have those conversations, yes, we want to do that. But avoiding them in the sense of not allowing them to take a place of where they're now leading people astray, being a good shepherd over the flock. And that's what he's talking about here. And so it's important that we see that. And so you take all of that together and how we combat this bad teaching is we hold fast to God's word, we let it be authority over us, We continue to do so in community together as we seek to obey what God's word has told us. So all that said, kind of done with that text, go back to my story at the beginning. Do you have an answer? What do you say? 
Like, what's the, what's the answer to the question? Well, here, take these brochures and put them in your church. Is that a big deal? The answer is yes, it's a big deal. That is a closed-handed issue when we get to the person and work of Jesus and who he is and what he's done. The Bible says that Jesus is God. And it says it over and over and over and over and over again. Jesus says that he's God. He's where, and he's, he's making that claim throughout his ministry, and he's saying it over and over again. The I am statements at his trial before the Sanhedrin. He says it over and over again. You see Jesus saying this. The fact that he's forgiving sins. He's doing things that only God is allowed to do over and over again. But not only that, in the New Testament, they understood, the New Testament writers, the apostles that were eyewitnesses of Jesus, they were worshiping him as God. They were saying that. They were gathering together in his name and worshiping him as God. You see it in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, which a Jehovah's Witness will say, and the word was a God. And they'll say, no, 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 you're missing one word. And they'll try to kind of massage that to say, no, 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 that's not actually saying he's God. So then you go to Hebrews 1 where it says he's the exact imprint of the very nature of God. Or you go to Colossians 1 where it says he is the image of the invisible God and in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Saying Jesus is God. But in those discussions, and this is where the the flattery, the the slippery slope, go, yeah, 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 yeah. He's not actually God, but he is our savior. And, and there should be an A before God. He's a God, not the God. But yes, you're saved through Jesus. But here's the problem, and I want you to think about how you'd answer this and why doctrine is so important. What we believe that happened on the cross with Jesus, the atonement, how we are saved Second Corinthians five says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we could become the righteousness of God in him, that Jesus became our sin. He took our sin upon himself and he paid for it. And on the cross, God bore his wrath on Jesus, the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. The fullness of God's holy, righteous anger was unleashed on Jesus so that we could be saved, that our sin could be dealt with. If Jesus is a created being who is not fully God, he could never withstand the wrath of God, the fullness of the wrath of God on our behalf. And if that is true, we are still in our sins and we are hopelessly lost because Jesus is not God, if that's what you believe. But thankfully, wonderfully, Jesus is God. And he did bear the fullness of God's wrath. He did save us. He did do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And so we worship him as God in the flesh the one who's done for us what we could never do. And so that is a closed-handed issue that goes to the very heart of everything we believe. But I'll end here with this. If I see that guy again and I get the opportunity to talk to him again, I'm going to say, let's talk more about who Jesus is. I'm not mad at him. not angry. I want him to know the fullness of who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. And so I'm going to continue to look for opportunities to have those conversations. Because I want people to know the truth of who God is and what he's done for us. And that's the heart of what Paul's talking about here, that we would hold fast to the doctrine as it's been revealed to us. So let's pray. God, we thank you for the glorious good news of the gospel. We thank you that you have done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. 
that you, the God of the universe, took on flesh and came to us. And we thank you that you have revealed yourself in this way that we could know you and love you. We thank you that you have, by grace through faith, saved us. I pray that we would rest in the truth of your word. I pray that we would care so much about what you have done for us and the way that you've revealed herself, that we would continue to go back to your word, let it stand over us to see clearly who you are, that we would hold fast to these truths and that we would defend those with great love and humility to those around us for your glory and our good. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.